You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Mail theft is up across America and here in Hawaii, but officials fear there are more cases than are actually reported. We reached out to Jeff Fish, postal inspector out of the San Francisco office. We're seeing it across the nation, but we are seeing it on all the Hawaiian Islands. And the supervisor of our office there in Honolulu, which covers the whole state, said that his concern is making sure people report the mail theft, that that's the key, and that he would like to see, instead of you know, just putting it on a next door or another site, that that's all good to do, but make a report with law enforcement, make a report with postal inspectors. You can do it online. You can contact us at our 24-hour number, which is our dispatch, and that number is 877-876-2455. And we answer that phone number nights, weekends, holidays, anytime. So if you had something happen, you can call that number. There's instructions on how to make an online report if you just want to go to your computer and make an online report. If not, stay on the line and you talk to one of our dispatchers, and that report will be sent electronically to our Honolulu office. Being a federal agency, our dispatch centers are in Dallas, Texas, and Dallas, Virginia. So you know, you just have to identify where you're calling from, that you've had mail theft happen, and then you'll get a, a complaint that'll go into the system. And we look at those complaints, and the inspectors that are stationed there in Honolulu use that uh, information to conduct their investigations. And remind our listeners, what's the penalty for postal crime? Mail theft is a federal crime. Postal inspectors are federal agents. We're one of the oldest federal law enforcement agencies, if you're a history buff. But the potential penalty for uh, theft of mail is up to five years in federal prison and up to a $250,000 fine. Now, the Postal Service also has a standing reward for information leading to arrest and conviction of an individual or individuals for mail theft of up to $10,000. How is someone to know if someone's stolen their mail? Well, if you are expecting something and it, it doesn't arrive, if, you know, it's been a, several days, um, or if, you know, one day you realize you absolutely received nothing, or receive no mail for two or three days, and you know you should be expecting something. That could be uh, possible mail theft. Uh, the other is if you get a bank statement or credit card statement and you see charges on there that you did not make, then make a report. If you know or think you know that something's been taken in three to four weeks, again, if you see something on that credit card statement or bank statement, contact postal inspectors again, because that's information that may help us identify what gas station convenience store, department store, or online purchase was made by the suspects, and that will help us in our cases together. Now, I've seen a number of entries on, uh, you know, the website Stolen Stuff Hawaii where folks are posting a video of the porch pirates. You know, you've got a box on, on the... And again, if it, it was delivered via U.S. mail, you know, contact postal inspectors. And if you have any footage like that of people, you know, either opening up the mailbox and putting their hand in the mailbox or somebody taking something off the porch, contact postal inspectors. Okay. Also, to make a report with your local law enforcement, either the police department or the sheriff's office. And uh, even if it's an informational report, that's information that gets tracked. We share information with our local partners. And when we're doing these investigations, we many times work very closely with the local police. So that's key because, you know, if we're dealing with, let's say, a ring, if you folks then can share the information, then, you know, there's a better chance of building a case against these thieves. Absolutely. Every little bit helps. You know, if we have some video, we have information showing bank transactions or credit card transactions. We're able to put together the, the mail theft with ongoing criminal activity. When we're putting the case together and presenting it to either the local prosecutor or the federal prosecutor, that helps these cases. And did you notice a spike at all in the numbers, you know, with the stimulus checks getting sent out, you know, in those cards? I don't have any statistics for that. But again, anytime, you know, there's attractive items moving through the, the postal system, that's always something that the thieves are looking for. So again, when I was speaking with the uh, supervisor of our Honolulu office. He just wants to, everybody on the, the islands to know that you know, making a report makes a difference and that his concern is putting reports onto different websites. That does help your neighbors, but to get the information to law enforcement, to get it to postal inspectors, that is key. And I've done stories here locally, you know, where we had thieves go into the post offices and steal the garbage cans, you know, because a lot of uh, 
folks that maybe have a, a box, a P.O. box, will go and then they'll just throw, you know, the credit card offers and that kind of thing into the garbage without, you know, tearing them up. And the thieves, you know, just made off with the, the some of that information. And, and then, uh, you know, folks fell victim to that. Well, that's another area that what's critical uh, for many of these investigations, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to put out a prevention message, is that's the information to take home and shred. You know, have a personal shredder. That, that We can't recommend that highly enough that uh, and run all of it, anything that's got any personal data or anything like a, the credit card applications, anything that could be possibly used, run that through the shredder before putting that out for recycling. Okay, don't just dump it in the in any old garbage can because, uh, yeah, thieves uh, will sift through there. Well, you know, there's also thieves that will go through people's, you know, it, not just the trash cans at the post office, but also through your personal trash cans. So you just have to, you know, take that extra step for anything that is potentially a financial uh, item or has some type of financial connection, properly dispose of it. And running it through a shredder makes a huge difference. We have had cases here locally, too, where thieves have gone in with some kind of, you know, sticky trap and, and uh, will put that in a blue mailbox, you know, uh, by the post office just to see what they can uh, get away with. We do actively investigate those cases. That Those are still crimes. So what we want, you know, the same thing, if somebody sees something like that, even if it's on a weekend, if you spot something like that, you can report that to that 24-hour number, our dispatch, that 8762455. We do, you know, working with uh, the Postal Service maintenance teams, you know, we're always looking for anything, you know, that there's a number of different ways that uh, the thieves try to access or uh, affect some of those boxes. And, again, those are also federal crimes. I just can't or overstate how important the, the reporting is. And we've got a... a a team of inspectors and support staff there in Honolulu that work on these investigations. It does make a difference. Working with your neighbors, uh, because if they've been a victim of mail theft, or you, there's the chances are you may have been a victim of mail theft. And if the uh, mail thieves come into a neighborhood, they're not just going to target one house. So be on alert. Be careful what you put in your box if you can't lock it. And check your security cameras if you have one, if you see open boxes on your street. And talk to your neighbors. To find out more about reporting postal theft and for links, head to our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. And we will also have info about uh, Consumer Protection Week, which starts March 1st, Monday. The Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs will host a uh, virtual consumer fair uh, that will include uh, information to avoid falling victims to scams. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Highway Inn Hawaiian Food, the Oahu Coral Society, and Janelle Israel and Associates. They believe, as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we got to wondering about the history of the postal system and all things postal. Stamp collecting may not be your cup of tea, but you can learn a lot from those who do collect stamps. We reached out to the Hawaiian Philatelic Society, which has been around for more than 100 years here in the islands. Did you know that stamp collecting was a hobby of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt? He credited it with helping him get through dealing with polio as a child. Here is Wayne Yakuma, president of the Hawaiian Philatelic Society, talking about stamp collecting here in the islands. President Roosevelt was an avid stamp collector more than anything else. In fact, he credits stamp collecting after he de developed polio to keeping him alive, so to speak, in terms of getting uh, information and things like that. He had several trips to Hawaii, and he liked the islands, but you know, there's not, not too much that I have in terms of that kind of information as to President Roosevelt in Hawaii. I know I've seen, um, I've seen pictures of him here and things like that. Well, I'm looking at but, one that I've just pulled up, 
FDR. It's called the Pineapple Post. It's a 10-cent stamp. Oh, okay. Okay. Then I can tell you what that is. Okay. Pineapple Post is not a real stamp in terms of it's not going through the USPS. It's not through the United States Postal Service. Pineapple Post was um, done, if I recall correctly, by Craig Miyamoto. He made issues to commemorate certain events here in Hawaii kind of thing. And so he made these stamps. Um, he was a dealer, and he, he sold them at the shows and things like that. So there are some stamps that are not United States Postal Service stamps, but they were made to honor certain individuals kind of stuff. So that's what you're probably looking at now if it says Pineapple Post on it. Right, and then I'm, another one I'm looking at, it says uh, General Issue United States Postage. It's got his face on it, Roosevelt, and it says Hawaii 1778 to 1928. You know, I'm not a collector, so uh, I'm just yeah. these things just make me curious, though. Yeah, well, the 1778 to 1928. It's a five-cent stamp, overprint stamp, it says. Overprint, yeah, that was an overprint. What does um, that mean? What happens is sometimes in the, in the past to commemorate an event, instead of making a um, brand-new stamp, what they did was they overprinted them. That one actually was not Franklin Roosevelt. That's Teddy Roosevelt ah. on that stamp, okay, so... Yeah, it's uh, Hawaii 1778 to 1928. The Scott number is 648. And, in fact, there's a, another one with uh, Washington on it, the 647. So are these just um, commemorative uh, stamps? Well, they're, they're commemorative stamps, but they were actually used for postage, too, for the 647 and 648. It's a way they used to um, commemorate an event when they didn't have time or didn't want to create a brand-new stamp kind of stuff. Um, today, we do a lot more of the making new stamps as opposed to just putting the um, lettering on top of it. I mean, there is uh, overprints for Kansas, Nebraska. There's even overprints for the Philippines and things like that where we just used our stamps. And to say this is where we're at, you know, they, they would just overprint the stamp. Yeah, that's what confused me because... I didn't think there was one from 1928 for Franklin Roosevelt because he was president in the 19, 1930s and 1940s. So there are so, memorial stamps, uh, there are commemorative stamps. Oh, so yeah. it really runs the gamut. I mean, if you're not a collector, you might not know this detail. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, it's one of those things where, you know, you run across a stamp and a lot of people think anything that's old is going to be worth a lot. It really depends on um, how popular it was and how many of them were made. A lot of the stamps you can still get very, very inexpensively. Really, it just depends on what you want to collect and um, what you want to do. In certain years, they've had the series of presidents from George Washington to Lyndon Johnson. You know, it really depends on what the Postal Committee decides on creating that year. And I've often heard that, uh, you know, President Roosevelt, you know, while he collected stamps, he collected, you know, a lot of just what he liked. He actually approved stamp designs. Um, as president, he, he approved more than 200 stamp designs during his time. It's said that he actually used them for the purpose of promoting actions that he wanted kind of stuff. A lot of the patriotic stamps during uh, World War II were approved by him in order to essentially show the patriotism of the country kind of stuff, you know, or buy war bonds, you know, things like that. I don't think most presidents actually approve the designs themselves kind of thing. One of the stories about Franklin Roosevelt is one of the things that he would do is he wanted designs that would help promote the country and promote his uh, program, you know, during that time frame. So the club here has been around for, you know, what you said, 110 10 years. 110 years as of April 13th. You, you mentioned there was a stamp that was issued on a submarine? Yep, there was one that was issued in 1994 called the Wonders of the Sea. It's a Satanic issue, which means there are stamps adjoining each other. They have four pictures of the ocean that make up the block of stamps kind of thing. And that was on the Atlantis submarine, and I was lucky enough to be invited by the U.S. Postal Service 
to go on their submarines to take a look at the first day of issue and the unveiling of the design underwater. Well, that's different. Oh, yeah. It was the first time I think it was ever done. Okay, it was Monday, October 3rd, 1994. Any other notable things that you can share with our listeners as we mark this anniversary? Hawaii has been unique. It's one of the few states that has had a 25th anniversary stamp done. On the 25th anniversary of our statehood, we actually had a 25th anniversary stamp done. Normally, it's the 50th anniversary and past, and we've had not only the 25th, but we also had one for the 50th anniversary of statehood as well. We've had designers of stamps here in Hawaii. Herb Kane was one of the designers whose um, designs were put out by the U.S. Postal Service. And we had Clarence Lee, and he started the New Year's stamps. And it's kind of interesting because when I talked to Clarence uh, before, he said his first stamp was supposed to be just a one-time thing, the year of the rooster. And so he made the stamp, got approved, and was done. But the U.S. Postal Service had so much interest in the stamp worldwide that they decided to do the whole 12 issues 12 stamps of the um, Lunar New Year with all Clarence Lee designs. Then they actually put them all together on one sheet for a 13th year. And they're still doing uh, Lunar New Year stamps now. So, you know, they just kept it going kind of thing because it's one of those topics that is sold not just to the United States, but to China, to Far Eastern countries, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it was a Hawaii stamp that really resonated around the world. Kind of neat. Yeah, well, it it was a Hawaii designer who created the stamp that, yeah, resonated and created all these Lunar New Year stamps that we keep seeing every year now. Okay, so Hawaii uh, makes its mark uh, on stamp collecting. Oh, yeah. Hawaii has always been a great place for first day of issue. We had the um, first day of issue for Captain Cook over here. Captain Cook stamps. We've had first day of issues probably more than more than we should have based on how many people we have and all of that. But I had noted that a lot of times the U.S. Postal Service has the uh, first days here in Hawaii in the uh, winter month when it's nice and warm and people come out for that stamp from the U.S. Postal Service for the first day of issue ceremony. Interesting trivia. That was Wayne Yukuma, president of the Hawaiian Philatelic Society. Prior to the shutdown, the club met in person at the St. Louis Alumni Clubhouse on the second Mondays of each month. And we should note that since we marked President's Day this month, that stamps from the collection of President Roosevelt are in the hands of many collectors around the globe. Our daily reality check features a story today by Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Claire Caulfield. It gives us a really interesting snapshot of the agriculture parks across the state. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, so you did a deep dive looking at what all the lease records of these parks? Yeah, so there are um, 10 state-run agriculture parks, and an agriculture park is really just um, a convenient way for small farmers to get a couple acres of land, a long-term lease, and access to some infrastructure. Um, So they're about... 200 plus plots of land run by the state DOA. And so I um, looked at a couple decades of tax tax records to determine, you know, what's really going on with this program. So what did you find out? Yeah. So with um, many programs, there are winners and losers. Um, So this program has definitely helped small farmers, family farmers access land that they probably wouldn't have been able to otherwise. We all know land here is expensive and these leases are really affordable. Um, Leases are also able to be transferred from one farmer to another. And that has really helped family farms continue the legacy, um, helped neighbors make sure that land stays in the hand of small farmers or small food producers, um, yeah, and help the second generation continue farming in some ag parks. 
but um, the losers may be some people who don't have connections because the easiest and most efficient way is to take over an existing lease. So for a beginning farmer who doesn't know anyone at an ag park, um, they complain that the system is really bureaucratic or it's, it's hard to get a lease because some of these parks, I mean, you can be waiting for years and years and years and years for a plot to go up for public bid. It is a closed bidding system, but then to be released to the public... Then once some of these plots do go up, um, the highest bidder gets the first opportunity at the lease. And so, you know, some food producers with with slim margins think that this isn't really serving small farmers. And uh, I know you spotlighted a, a park on Kauai where most of the leases are held by one company. Yes, that's true. So um, at the Ag Park on Kauai, there's only one. Um, 18 of the 19 leases are held by one company. Um, When I asked DOA about this, they really pointed to the fact that the land isn't necessarily well suited for traditional agriculture, um, which wasn't the intention when they set up the park. So they said, um, so basically an aquaculture company came in, um, aquaculture, you know, is is raising fish. um, And so it can be very expensive to set up that kind of system. You need tanks, you need chemicals, you need all sorts of stuff to run an aquaculture company. And so this one large company, you know, was able to lease 18 of the 19 plots because they were able to offer up the most for these leases. So of the folks that you talk to, you know, when you say, well, it's just kind of kind of unequal across the board, uh, you know, what do they say we need to do? Um, So I really spoke to a lot of food producers who you know, they really want uh, more focus on producing local food. Um, they would love to see ag parks specifically earmarked for people who are raising local food. Um, a lot of the ag park land is used for growing landscaping, you know, turf, ornamental plants, or, you know, like on Kauai, that, uh, that aquaculture company is raising shrimp brood stock. Um, and so, you know, people are calling on on the department to make changes to prioritize local food production. And you were able to actually visit a a couple of these uh, ag parks. What struck you when you were out in the field? Um, Really the sense of community at these agriculture parks. Um, That is one of the benefits is you're surrounded by other farmers. As I was walking down the lane, everyone, you know, who saw me pulled over their car and said, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? Can I help you? Um, And once I, you know, chatted with them, they were very friendly and they said, you know, we just look out for each other here. If someone's, someone's wandering about, we want to, we want to know and make sure, you know, there's, there's nothing shady going on. And then when I asked them, you know, what was their favorite part about being in Ag Park, they cited that community connection. Oh, well, that's interesting. All right. Well, thanks for your story. It gives us a, a, a really nice glimpse into what's going on out there uh, on our landscape. But thanks so much, Claire. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Claire Caulfield with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Arts exhibition O Kalani, featuring works by contemporary Native Hawaiian artists Sean K. L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele, extended through April 11th. HonoluluMuseum.org. The pandemic certainly has limited physical access to materials at the State Archives as it's operating on reduced hours. We talked to State Archivist Adam Jansen about the mission of the repository of some of the most important documents of our Hawaii. That was a bit of a challenge for us because, you know, it's Archives Month in October where we try to highlight what does archives do for people in their lives. And with us being closed, we had to go completely virtual this past year. And so for us, it was, it was a, an amazingly new experience because what we did is we digitized huge portions of music-related collections to put online. So we digitized 7,000 pages of manuscript material and some 700 photographs. The archives, you know, has been trying to make its collection available to the public online, but it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work because we're, we're dealing with two dynamics here. We have all the legacy materials, 14,000 boxes of paper records that date back to 1790, but then also all of the, the maya being produced today, which is in the digital format already. 
So how do you arrange and describe and make accessible this huge volume of digital materials while also making the past current and relevant and discoverable as well? And so a lot of our initiatives have been really focusing on those two issues and combining them into one repository so that the citizens, the researchers, the public only have one place to go to find all this information. And for folks who may not know, people need documentation from the archives if they want to, you know, get into Kamehameha, if they want their children to apply, uh, or if they're dealing with something with land court, right? You, you need access to those documents. That's correct. And this pandemic has really helped solidify for our stakeholders how important access to the archives is. You don't really realize how vital the records that we hold are until you try to defend your land rights, until you try to do some genealogy research going back to kingdom, because perhaps you do want to get your, your children into Kamehameha schools. And then suddenly, if your access is blocked, you know, how do you reconnect with this history? How do you protect your rights without being able to come into the facility? When are you open exactly? So we are currently open Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. And that's really not by, by our design, but by the fact that we are on Iolani Palace grounds. And so the grounds themselves are locked except for when the palace is open for tours. So as they expand their accessibility, we mirror that. So when they start opening the palace on Mondays and Tuesdays for tours, we'll also be open Mondays and Tuesdays. Their crowds are different than your crowds. You don't have 30 people signed up to do an audio tour or a, a, a tour by a docent, right? I mean, you, your clientele trickles in. That is correct. And so we've had to reduce capacity for our research room right now to only eight researchers at a time. And it's, and it's on a first-come, first-served basis. If there is a, a line wait, uh, we do institute a two-hour uh, minimum research time, and then we try to, to filter in the next person. And, and thus far, that eight has, has been a good number. We haven't really reached that capacity point frequently, uh, and very often we'll only have two or three researchers in an entire day. Now, what about tours for lawmakers, because you traditionally uh, hold a, an event where the, a lot of the new lawmakers can come in and see what the archives are all about. Yes, and unfortunately this year we've had to put that on hold, because the, the entire way that legislators are conducting business in, in this environment, they're, they're avoiding the capital themselves. A lot of their hearings that they have to do, they're doing it from remote offices, from their homes. So they're not physically here. So trying to get them together and, and having to limit it into very small groups just didn't work this particular legislative cycle. Talk about the master plan to digitize your collection. Uh, you know, how have you been able to accelerate that? Part of it is the fact that we are closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, we were closed for the you know, first two months of the pandemic. What that has allowed us to do is focus internally, to look at what are the most important records that we need to push out first. And that was, that was our finding aids, the indexes, so that researchers can, can do some analysis to say, does the archives even have what I'm looking for? So we digitized tens of thousands of pages of, of finding aid material, index cards, and, and have those on our website right now. And then beyond that, it's like, what is our biggest research base? What information do they need to access most desperately? And our initiatives have all been pushing towards digitizing genealogy records, marriage, birth, death digitizing land records and then matching them up to that existing index, which we've now not only digitized, but also entered into a database so that very shortly you'll be able to do searches on individuals or place locations and have these results come back. And then at one time, I believe the State Archives was looking at digitizing photos from the Honolulu Advertiser and the Star Bulletin. Where are we at with that? So right now we're focusing on digitizing our general photo collection. We have over 120 boxes of photographs 
in that collection, and we're about halfway through that project. Uh, we're about to upload another, I think, 25 boxes of photos into our, our super secret kind of sort of public, we're starting to unveil digital archives. And concurrently with that, we're still organizing the Star Advertiser collection because when they gave it to us, it was over 500 boxes, banker-sized boxes of photographs. And so that's been a multi-year project to get organized. And we're about a third of the way through that. And so we're, we're, we're happy with the progress. We'd like to see more. Okay. So that's the advertiser's photos Correct. and the Star Bulletin's photos, <laughs> two papers that aren't in existence because they have melded into the Star Advertiser. The photos are amazing look into the 50s, 60s, and, and 70s. It's, so it really fits, uh, it fills a puka in our, in our general photo collection where we really didn't have a whole lot of photographs from that time period. And so being able to add that in, the famous individuals and events that occurred in those decades has been a great benefit to us and, and to some of our researchers. And, you know, last year we marked the anniversary of the state capitol building you know you had ceremonies there you folks uh, had the time capsule that you unearthed you discovered rediscovered and uh, and you put in a new one uh, fortunate we weren't in lockdown at that time it, it really was an amazing experience because it's it's rare that you get to focus on such historic events in in today's environment you know we're always so busy doing what we're doing to just stop for a second and realize how far we've come and to be able to say we also want to leave something for future generations so what should we put into this time capsule to in, to capture who we are as a people today and what our hopes and dreams for them in the future are and be able to lock that away for another 50 or 100 years it really helped raise the awareness of the importance of who we are and where we want to go and what have you been able to do to document what we lived through last year, this pandemic? I appreciate you asking that because that is still an ongoing process. And we are asking for donations from the public of photographs, uh, stories, oral histories, objects that help define what this past year was to them. With a particular emphasis, we're asking for those success stories. There's so much doom and gloom, and, and it's been an absolutely horrible um, time as far as people getting sick and, and the number of fatalities. And, and we, we need to remember that. But there's also been these successes, these everyday heroes, these teachers that are still reaching out to their students and being accessible you know, be well beyond normal school hours to make sure that they have that opportunity to connect to contact, to grow and learn. You know, to me, these are stories that don't get enough play because there's only so much media bandwidth that we want to document those. And so on our website, we do ask for solicitations. I've had several well-known photographers go out and take pictures of the food drives and, and teachers with the remote school rooms and all the closed businesses so that we can preserve this and, and hopefully never forget it. We serve as, as the keepers of public memory, and, and we're taking that very literally in this case to be proactive about capturing these things because we shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel when this happens again. It's not a question of if. So all of these policies, all of the, the, the work at the legislature, we're capturing all of those documents to put them in one single repository so that when needed, we can go back again to say what worked, what didn't, how long did it take to do things, what did they do, how can we improve it? And I know you love your job, but is there anything recently that you can point to that sheds the light on a particular point in time in Hawaii history? That's one of the most interesting things, I think, about the job that we have here in the archives. When you have 14,000 boxes of information, it's a little bit of everything. And, and, you know, the most recent thing for us was the Archives Month celebration that we did last October. And the reason we chose that is it was the 100th anniversary of the return of Makia Kialakai from, from the mainland. He left uh, during the, the Republic period because he, he refused to swear allegiance to the new government, took Hawaiian music to the mainland, and, and toured all over the U.S. playing Hawaiian music to huge 
multi-tens of thousands crowds and really helped broaden the influence of Hawaiian music into mainstream and developed a new style of guitar that was played by Elvis and Johnny Cash. And, and so you could argue that he influenced modern rock and roll. And we never would have known about this if we hadn't had a brilliant music historian come in and say, hey, did you guys know this was happening? And look at all these records you have, all, all these documents, photographs of him and his, and his tours. And so for us, it, it's constantly a new discovery process as we share with the researchers and the things that they uncover. And I should note that uh, that wonderful exhibit that was at the Bishop Museum uh, just uh, closed at the end of January, and I was able to catch it uh, before it was taken down, and it was lovely. Wonderful uh, slice of life in Hawaii history. And, and again, a demonstration of, of how a little bit of everything for everybody here at the archives, and, and it's just a wonderful development and learning process to bring the past back. And so hopefully we can look down 2021 and uh, see a glimmer of hope that uh, you folks will be able to be open five days a week. We certainly hope so. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to that because we know we serve a vital function for public. You know, we protect the rights, identity, property, and history of the people of Hawaii. And as such, they need to have access. And the, the benefit, if there could be one out of 2020, is it helps show how important it is to make these resources accessible to those who cannot travel. Either they live on a neighbor island or they're physically unable to come down to the archives or take time off of work. So we're really pushing in 2021 to make more and more of these things accessible online. Right. Digitize it and uh, share it. So for anybody who wants to, we have the beta version of our digital archives online. We would love for you to try it out. Give us some feedback. You know, the UI, the user interface is still in flux. We're trying to make it better and easier to find what you're looking for amongst the millions of, of pages of materials already online. So take a look at that at digitalarchives.hawaii.gov. That was state archivist Adam Jensen. State lawmakers are considering a bill this session to fund a master plan. What will the archives need for the next 50 years? It is close to capacity. Jensen says it will look at whether its future plans uh, should include new gallery space or classrooms to meet the changing needs of the public. Lawmakers will be taking up bills in both the House and the Senate in the weeks to come. In our Mauka to Makai Watch, today we take a closer look at the University of Hawaii's College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources, CETAR. It developed the Agricultural Extension Service in the late 1920s. Its mission? To use science to find the best growing practices for crops and livestock. Glenn Tevis has been a UH Extension agent for four decades. He's based in Molokai. You might say that ag is in his blood. His grandparents established the Manoa Valley Homestead back in 1938. That is where Tevis grew up, learning hands-on how to care for the cattle, the pigs, the chickens, and the goats on the family's three-acre property. He received his horticulture degree from UH and became the first extension agent to work with Hawaiian homesteaders there on Molokai. The conversations Lee and Sang sat down with Tevis to talk about the ins and outs of growing food in Hawaii. We're still the largest college in the university, but around early 2000s, we were downsized because of funding, and we, we went from 12 departments to six departments. So that's a concern because now you don't have specialists in certain areas like agriculture, engineering, agriculture economics, and some of these other areas have kind of been lost, and, and you don't have these specialists that you can access. So you become weak in certain areas. So that is a concern even today because the extension agents have to cover a lot of ground and in some instances they may not have the background to help with the issue. And if you look in Hawaii, we have say 350 vegetable and herb crops. You have new crops that have come in with the um, immigrants 
the Southeast Asians brought in their own types of vegetables and herbs. So you have a lot of a lot of different crops, probably more so than any place else in the United States. Go to Chinatown, you are seeing fruits that you might not have seen like 20 years ago, like the soursop. If you have people who are studying it, you might say this is the best practice on growing it. Yes, yes. And not only that, what variety to grow. And we've done a lot of research in this area on growing um, different types of mangoes and citrus and lychee, you know, long gone. And then you have all this new stuff coming in, jaboricaba and, and dragon fruits. And yeah, it's just it's unlimited. Why is it important to know what variety to grow? Some varieties do very well in Hawaii and some do not. Avocado would probably be a good example. You can grow an avocado that grows really well in your backyard, or you could grow one full of strings. On top of that, we have all these different soils, all these different climates. Of all the climatic zones in the world, we have, I think, all except two. I think one of them is like tundra. We don't have any tundra, you know, year-round ice. Mm -hmm. But we have most of the climatic zones, as well as 160 soil types, more than any place else in the world. So if you multiply those two numbers together, this is how many microclimates we have. So in theory, you can grow just about any crop. You just have to find that microclimate. Asparagus grows almost anywhere, but there's some crops that grow specific, such as maybe proteas up in Kula. You know, you have teas up in Waimea. So you can find a climate that will fit just about every crop. There's this lady up in Waimea that grows wasabi in her backyard. She has running water, and, you know, that's that's another crop that's not that easy to grow in any place else in the United States, but it grows in Hawaii. I think for the person who's just enticed by the idea of growing wasabi, but the reality is, like, if I were in, say, Eva, too dry, I don't have the suitable conditions for that yeah. crop. But what you're saying is everybody has to do their own homework and find that right variety for your situation. Yes, yes, very true. The thing that a lot of people don't understand is in the tropics, and we're in the tropics, we're one of the only states that have this kind of climate, is that the nights are warm, and the, the days are hot, but the nights are warm. And what that does to plants is they're not able to rest. In most areas, such as Caribbean climates or even on Mediterranean climates, especially Mediterranean climates, uh, you have a... Um, a hot day but you got a cold night and that mm -hmm. cold night allows the plants to rest and build up their carbohydrates and their energy so they can handle the next day mm -hmm. and so varieties developed in the mediterranean will have a hard time in the tropics growing so we have to actually select varieties that can handle these special kind of conditions some plants are affected by the day land some some are affected by you know the climate changing too often which is the norm for hawaii right now so, yeah, you need to have, especially in Hawaii, you need to have heat-tolerant varieties. Um, and some of this stuff is actually coming out of Asia, Taiwan, and China that have this similar climate, and they have developed varieties for these kind of conditions. So we have to seek that out. We have to test mm -hmm. it against what we got in Hawaii to see if they're um, superior to what we already have and then start moving into the more superior varieties. So as an extension agent, your job basically is to test these new varieties in the Hawaii climate that you're in. Yes, and we've done a lot of this over the last 40 years on Molokai. Mm -mm -mm. In Hawaii, what are some good varieties for a tomato? Tomato, I think the Hawaii varieties are really good. Um, Anahu and Heolani, and for the grapes, Komohana. And it's interesting because on some varieties, um, mainland varieties, they actually use the Hawaii varieties as parents to breed new varieties. And so one of them is called Celebrity. It's an All-America winner that actually was developed from Anahu. Uh, so that's that's another good variety. Well, that's interesting. So Hawaii genes on the mainland to help them build a more, is it resilient tomato? Disease resistance. Hmm. How about pepper? Peppers, there's some diseases on peppers depending on where you are. If you're in a wet area, there's a bacteria, and there's also a phytophthora, a root rot. So you would need to have um, resistance to those diseases. In other areas that are dry, you can have uh, virus problems, tobacco mosaic virus, um, potato virus Y. 
resistant varieties. So some of the companies on the mainland develop those types of varieties, but you need to know what problem you have so you can find those varieties. It's amazing to hear that, you know, 50% of the the college was slashed into 2000, so it feels like then as an extension agent, you had to take more on your plate. I think the extension agents are having a real hard time right now. Um, some of them have retired, and because of the economic situation at the college, they're not hiring. So one example, we have an extension agent on the Big Island mm-hmm. that covers from Honoka to uh, Kau, about 80-mile stretch. And there's a lot of farms over there, and her job is just with uh, is vegetables. Well, they call it edible crops, so that's fruits and vegetables. So one person to cover an 80-mile uh, swat is a really tough job. And so, yeah, we're getting kind of um, overloaded at times. Uh, we need to work uh, as a team to maybe specialize. Sometimes you cannot work one-on-one too much because it takes up too much time. So you need to move into more group-type activities. And that's where Zoom comes in now, where we can have workshops with 10, 15, 20 farmers together. We uh, recently had this whole series for papaya growers. We have a meeting every Tuesday night, and we go through things such as soil samples and pest problems and those kind of things, and then multimedia um, methods of, of communicating with the community. I was watching your Local Seeds for Local Needs series, Molokai Extension, put out on YouTube. You are banking your knowledge on this platform and is this a new series that has just started for the public yeah we just started that youtube channel actually that was filmed down at uh maui college farm unfortunately uh maui college is going to be shutting down the farm at the end of this year i don't quite understand but um you know it may be funding it may be other issues so we'll be shutting down that farm and we need to look for another home to um to do more uh, demonstration-type projects. We do trials down there. We do. Uh, we have the Hawaiian taro collection down there. Uh, we have native trees. Um, Is it going to be relocated? We're really not sure. We're kind of in a very uncertain time right now, uh, especially with the budget crunch with the state. And, you know, I think right now they have enough money, but come July 1st, things are going to change real fast. So perhaps funding is an issue, but how about people using this resource? Are people going to the farm? Yes, with this whole COVID pandemic, everybody wants to learn how to garden. Everybody wants to learn how to you know, farm. So we had two rounds of uh, gardening down there. See, one of the real important things about extension is demonstration. You know, I remember some farmers, you know, telling me, hey, don't tell me, show me. You know, so, okay, this is your variety we got in this row, and this is the other two varieties. Which one is better? And so they see for themselves, they go, wow, this variety is better than mine. You know, I think I'll grow this variety. So that is part of technology transfer. Um, Mm. But variety alone is not enough. I mean, you need to be growing it right. You need to make sure that your soil is is healthy and it's alive, that you have all these microbes going on. You're creating a, um, a really good environment for plants to grow. And this is kind of the new direction and a lot of people don't understand. I mean, they just like throw fertilizer and expect everything to grow. But, you know, you got organic matter, you got all these other things, calcium, you need all these different nutrients are required in order to grow a good plant. And so that's where education comes in. Mm. Well, Glenn, another hat that you wear is seed farmer for the Hawaii Seed Growers Network. Recently, I read your blog entry titled Kaulua. Explain Kaulua to, to our listeners. Uh, Kaulua means the month of two minds. So um, the last three days on Molokai was like in the 80s, and the ground was cracking, and all these ants were coming out of the ground because there's no water. And then today, it's raining cats and dogs, there's thunder and lightning, and it's like, wait a minute, this is Kaulua. The transition time from the winter into more of the spring-type weather, and then Next month, March, which is, in a lot of respects, a very important month. Um, The first day of spring is March 21st, and that's the spring equinox. And what that means is that the day and the night is the same length. So it's 12-hour days and 12-hour nights. And then the days will get longer all the way till June 21st, which is the longest day, the first day of summer. 
So, Glenn, as a backyard gardener, what should I be doing during Kalua to prepare? Um, this is a good time to like get all your seeds started if you haven't. I mean, prepare your soil. If you got stuff in the ground, just nurture them because they're going to come alive. March is usually a very um, animated. The plants will come alive. They respond to that daylight change, and they know they're out of the winter season. They're out of their sleepy stage, and they're going to start growing again. So you need to get ready. You got to make sure um, the plants are fertilized and they're getting ready to go. So you don't want to hold them back. So yeah, everything can be planted right now. I mean, spring stuff, summer stuff, whatever you want to eat. Just don't plant too much of one thing unless you eat a lot of that. Okay. Quick question. Do we go seed direct into the ground, or should I start it inside and then transplant? It depends on the crop. Okay, so, and this is a big problem. I mean, I get calls about this all the time. So this is how it works. For the large seeded things, they go direct in the ground. So that's like beans and squash and all this kind of stuff go in the ground. Mm-hmm. Root crops all go direct in the ground. So that's radishes and carrots and beets. Mm-hmm. Those all go directly in the ground because the root crops don't transplant well. Okay. And so the plants that you grow in the tray would be um, your small seeded stuff like lettuce and broccoli and your mustards, you know, those kind of things, tomatoes, peppers and eggplants. Those all go in trays. Okay. So that's kind of the rule of thumb. But, you know, I, I can teach this in a class, and then two weeks later somebody says, you know, my beans are not doing too good in a tray. I said, do not <laughs> put the beans in the tray. Put them directly in the ground. Well, that was Glenn Tevez. He's been working as Moloka'i's extension agent since 1981. His family homestead is called Puakala Farms. He's also a seed farmer for the Hawaii Seed Growers Network. We'll post links to the Molokai Extension YouTube page and the Hawaii Seed Growers Network where you can find Glenn's blog and his newsletter for the Beginning Farmer Program. And that's it for today. Up tomorrow, we look at what educators are doing during these COVID times. Give us some feedback. Got questions about vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air? Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.